All right. Good evening. Everybody alive? All right. We're good. Wonderful. All right. Tonight we're going to let's open our Bibles to First Chronicles. First Chronicles. Last week we looked at verse, or chapters 23, 24, and 25. Tonight I'd like to do 26, 27, and uh, hopefully 28, and then we'll take communion together. And uh, I just want to tell you in advance, these first two chapters, as we have been uh, going through, if you remember last time we were together, there's a lot of names. And basically, David is preparing everything for his son Solomon to build the temple. We're getting very close to the end of David's life. And David has kind of adopted this idea, and it's very natural, I think, for a parent to do this. And it's confirmed to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Remember Paul speaking to them, he said, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. And so the idea is that uh, a family gets established, the mother and father, and they they develop resources and even wealth over their life. And then when their kids come into uh, their own, and as the parents' life begins to, you know, the sunset begins to set, and then the the children inherit the parents, uh, the home, the whatever, you know. And, And that's a very natural thing. And... And it ought to be that way. Uh, I think every parent here desires for their child or their children to grow up in an environment that is, as much as possible, void of true hardship and difficulty. I mean, that's just the the heart of a parent, right? You want your child to to not go through, they're going to go through difficulty enough as it is, but you want to give them a leg up on life. And so it's very natural. And so Paul says this, and this was actually David's heart as well. Uh, not only David, not only would he help Solomon and, and, and cause the uh, building of the temple to be done decently and, and in order. That, that's what David's heart was, is to provide for everything that the temple would need and also that things would be done decently and in order. And uh, that, that's also a, a scripture in 1 Corinthians 14 as well, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. And in a church, that really needs to happen. And even in the Old Testament, David here is doing all things decently and in order. So there's really, you know, if you think about it, there's been speculation about, you know, is God the same? You know, the God of the Old Testament, is he really the same as the God of the New Testament? And of course he is. He hasn't changed one bit. The principles of the Old Testament are still in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He still requires a sacrifice, right? The Old Testament, they continue doing sacrifices, and now that Christ has come, there's been one sacrifice that needed to be made, and that has been already made on the cross at Calvary some 2,000 years ago. So there's no longer any need for a sacrifice because the blood of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was shed on the cross for you and me. So God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. And you recall that even though David was not able to build the temple, his heart was to help Solomon. And David 
from all of his wars and all of the things that he had done, he had gathered all of this loot from the different battles and kings and kingdoms that he overthrew in God's name. And God had him do these things. And all of that gold and the silver and the bronze and, the, and, and all of the precious stones and all of those things, David would bring those into the treasury of the temple. And they would use those things to build the temple for Solomon. Because remember, the tabernacle was just this uh, mobile structure, and it went, it followed, you know, the, it, wherever the is, children of Israel were in the desert for 40 years, that's where the, the, the tabernacle was. It was erected, and then it was put down, and they would move, and then it would be put up again, and, and it was a very temporary structure, but this temple would be a permanent structure, and it would require a lot of resources. And not only the loot from David's battles, but David would also take of his own money and invest it in it. And also the people in Israel would do the same thing. And so, and David also established an order, not, not only in the materials, but the people, the artisans, those who would be helping Solomon build the temple. Solomon was very young when he became king, and he needed a lot of help. And his father David laid up in store for him everything that he needed, including the, the plans for the temple, the plans for the outer court, the plans for everything, and, and not only that, but the people. And you remember last two weeks, or last week, excuse me, we read through a list of these people and the services that they did, what the Levites did and, and what these other people did, and different uh, families within the line of Le Levi. They had certain roles. Some could only go in and touch the holy things. They wouldn't touch them, actually. They would, they would tend to those holy things. And other families of the tribe of Levi would be responsible for the outer outer covering of things, and, and they would tend to those things. And then there were other musicians and, and, and the like, and they would take care of those things. And so tonight, we're going to start in chapter 26. And last week, we looked at the, the divisions of the priests and other Levites. We looked at the musicians, and tonight, we're going to look at the gatekeepers. And, uh, and so let's look at chapter 26, 1 Chronicles 26. Let's just go right into verse 1 here. And just hang on, because we're going to basically, uh, there's not going to be a lot of comment on these names. We may stop a few moments for certain things, but for the most part, I'm just going to read them to you. And um, notice verse 1. Concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers, these were the guards of the temple, and they would guard the temple from anybody trying to come in and take advantage because all those treasures in, this, in the treasure houses within the temple, would there be a temptation for them to be raided. So these men were guards. They were literally gatekeepers. On each of the gates, there would be several of them, and, and you're not going to get by. You're not going to get by. So concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers... Of the Korahites, Meshelamiah, the son of Kor, of the sons of Asaph. And the sons of Meshelamiah were Zechariah, the firstborn, Jediael, the second, Zebediah, the third, Jathniel, the fourth, Elam, the fifth, Jehonan, the sixth, Eliahonai, the seventh. Moreover, the sons of Obed Edom. Does that ring a bell? Anybody remember Obed Edom? Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehazabad, the second, Joah, the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathanel, the fifth. Now, the, there were evidently two different Obed-Edoms in the Bible. 
And this Obed-Edom here in this passage, uh, evidently, and, and there's some speculation about this, it's not really a huge deal, but the Obed-Edom here in this passage appears to not be the same Obed-Edom that had the ark in his home before David brought it to Jerusalem. Because remember, when David brought it from, uh, from the Philistines, uh, remember David, it rested in um, uh, Ahimelech's house, for, for several years, and then David retrieved it, and remember, they brought it in on a cart. It was their first attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and remember, because they didn't do it in the proper way, Uzzah uh, died uh, because he touched the ark, and they weren't supposed to do it that way. They were supposed to carry it on poles, and so David put it into the house of Obed-Edom. He, he was nearby where this accident had occurred, and David was afraid of the Lord, uh, for a while, and then he realized that they didn't do it the proper way. So he finally does it the second attempt. They do it the right way. They bring it in out of Obed Edom's house, and finally bring it into Jerusalem for a and and they put it in a tent that Dable, that David had made specifically for it. The rest of the articles of the temple, or the uh, excuse me, the tabernacle, the the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar, the lampstand, all that stuff was still in Gabeon, about eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. So the only article of the tabernacle that was in Jerusalem was the Ark of the Covenant. And David built a a covering for that. But anyway, that was the Obed-Edom. But this evidently is not that Obed-Edom. And that can be a little confusing as you're reading through the Bible. There's a lot of similar names. And a really good Bible dictionary or a commentary will really help you because there's a lot of different names. And sometimes it takes some doing to track down who it is. And, and for me, that's important. It may not be a big deal to you, but I want to know if this is the Obed-Edom because it, it, it puts a different uh, slant on this passage for me. And just to know the truth of, of who this person is. And then it goes on, and it says, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, uh, Pelphei the eighth, for God blessed him. And these were the sons of Obed-Edom. Also to Shemaiah, his son, were sons born who governed their father's houses, because they were men of great ability. Notice that. They were men of great ability. And I like that, because when you think of the house of God, Even our own fellowship, this is not a temple, but it's a place that we as believers gather in. And we do it often. And there are men in our fellowship that are gifted in doing certain things, and you've seen some of their work. (laughs) And we're still in process of of finishing this. And, And back at this time, they had very skilled men. And it's important when you, we put our hands to the things of God that we don't just do it in a slovenly way. We do things because, and we want to represent Christ. The things that we do, even in our fellowship, Lord willing, we want to do it in such a way where it's a, it's a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, and we put forth our, very, our best effort in it. And that was the attitude of these men. And God knew that. Verse 7, it says, The sons of Shemaiah were Othni, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad, whose brothers Elihu and Semachiah were able men. And all these were of the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men with strength for the work, 62 of Obed-Edom. And Meshelamiah had sons and brethren, 18 able men, also Hosah, 
of the children of Merari had sons, Shimri the first, for though he was not the firstborn, his father made him the first, Hilkiah the second, Tebaliah the third, Zechariah the fourth, all the sons and brethren of Hosea were thirteen. Among those were the divisions of the gatekeepers, among the chief men having duties just like their brethren, to serve in the house of Jehovah. And they cast lots for each gate, the small as well as the great, according to their father's house. And the lot for the east gate fell to Shelemiah. And then they cast, lights for, cast lots for his son, Zechariah, a wise counselor. And his lot came out for the north gate, to Obed-Edom, the south gate, and to his sons, the storehouse. To Shupim and Hosa, the lot came out for the west gate, with the uh, Shalech gate on the ascending highway, watchmen opposite watchmen. And, and, and as I go through this, I'm going to break up the monotony of the names, but um, it's interesting to me that the author here, the chronicler, is, is speaking of things, of real places, real people, real arrangements. You know, the, the Bible is, a re, is real. <laughs> it, it's not just something that somebody made up. Uh, all of these things are here for a reason. And then on verse 17, it says, And on the east were six Levites, on the north four each day, on the south four each day, and for the storehouses two by two. As for the parbar, on the west there were four on the highway and two at the parbar, these were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of Merari. And so when we get into verse 20, we're going to be looking at the treasuries and those who would be overseeing those things. Again, David just spelling out for all of us just who these people are. And everybody had a plan and a purpose. You know, the body of Christ is, is varied. It's, it's very large. But we have one head. We have one. And yet we, although we are many, we are one body. Right? That's what the Old Testament or the New Testament tells us. It's what it tells us in Romans. We're many, but we're one. And you see this incredible intricacy of all these different people doing certain things. I wonder what it was like, you know, to see all of this happening. Everybody working together for a common goal. It's really beautiful when the family of God does that in anything that they do. And they do it out of love for Christ. They don't do it because they're getting paid. They, they do it because they love the Lord. And they, they do it because they want to be a witness to Christ. They want to encourage others to follow him. And when the body of Christ comes together, there is, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. No other entity on the earth can do like that, can be like that, and be unified like the body of Christ can be. So verse 20, of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasuries of the house of God and over the treasuries of the dedicated things. The sons of Laodon, the descendants, the defendants, here I'm, I'm already thinking like a trial here. The descendants of the Gershonites of Laodon, heads of their father's houses, of Laodon the Gershonite, Jehiel, Jehielai. Uh, the sons of Jehielai, Zetham and Joel, his brother, they were over the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the Amrites, Amramites, excuse me, the Izarites, the Hebronites, and the Uzielites, Shabuel, the son of Gershom, the, sons of, the son of Moses, was overseer of the treasuries. And his brethren by Eliezer were Rehabiah, his son, 
Jeshaiah his son, Joram his son, Zikri his son, and Shelomith his son. This Shelomith and his brethren were over all the treasuries of the dedicated things which King David and the heads of fathers' houses, the captains over thousands and hundreds, and the captains of the army had dedicated. Verse 27, some of the spoils won in battles they dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. And that was certainly one way they would get those materials is through the battles that they would win. And verse 28, and all that and all that Samuel the seer, Saul the son of Kish, Abner the son of Ner, and Joab the son of Zeruiah had dedicated, every dedicated thing was under the hand of Shelomith and his brethren. Of the Israelites, Shenaiah and his sons performed duties as officials and judges over Israel outside Jerusalem. Of the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his brethren, 1,700 able men, had the oversight of Israel on the west side of the Jordan for all the business of the Lord. The west side of the Jordan, that would be on, the, um, on this side of the Jordan, meaning um, um, toward the Mediterranean. And among the Hebronites, verse 31, Jerijah was head of the Hebronites according to his genealogy of the fathers. And it says, in the 40th year of the reign of David, they were sought and there were found among them capable men at Jazer of Gilead. And, and this is, and Gilead is that area to the east of the Jordan River. If you were looking at a map uh, in front, right in front of me, uh, there'd be the Jordan River, and there'd be the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea down here, and then in the south, and then the Jordan River. Everything on the east over here, there's a mountain range on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and that's called Gilead, because the, the Jordan Valley is literally a valley, and if you were to look at it, you go straight down from the north to the south, and there's this valley going down, but on each side of it is a mountain range, mountains all around it. And so that would be Gilead. And notice in the 40th year of the reign of David, and this was David's final year, his final year. Remember that David began ruling when he was 30 years old. He was 30 years old and he reigned for 40 years and then he died. So yes, he was 70 years old when he passed before Solomon, his son, took over. Second Samuel chapter 5 tells us that David... 2 Samuel 5 verse 4, it says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, so seven and a half years. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah, a total of 40 years, give or take six months. And so, verse 32, and it says, And his brethren were 2,700 2, able men, Heads of fathers' houses, whom King David made officials over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. Now let me ask you a question, because I know I've been reading these names and you're going, I hope, this, I hope tonight's not about, just going to continue going on. It's going to get better, I promise. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you a question, because I'm going to stop intermittently here to engage you, otherwise you're going to be starting, starting to snore and I'm going to start waking you guys up. Um, when we think of the tribe of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you were thinking of that map and that I, I was picturing in front of you with the Galilee up here and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, 
where is the tribe of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh? On the, on the west coast, west side, or the east side of that Jordan River? Ah, I made you think. You thought you were able to just coast, didn't you? <laughs> there are, it's on the, on the east side. It's on the east side. They were the first, remember, to inhabit the, the, it wasn't called the promised land. Remember when they were, before Moses and them crossed over from the, from the eastern side over to the western side of the Jordan River, there was a group of people, the, the, the Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they, they saw the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River over there by Gilead in that area. They really liked that area because they were farmers and they had a lot of cattle and they, they didn't really want to go anywhere else. And so God allowed them to do that. It wasn't his best for them. He wanted them all to be on the inside the promised land, on the western side of the, the Jordan River. That was originally his heart. But they wanted to stay on the eastern side. And God allowed them. But he says, listen, if you guys want to go there, stay out here, that's fine. But we're, you need to go and help your brothers conquer the land and fight their battles. And then once all that's done and everybody's settled, you can come back and settle in your land. Because they had to clean that out before they actually settled in it. And they had lots of wars but, um, and they were the first ones to go into captivity by Assyria. It's kind of interesting how they settled for God's second best, and yet they were the first ones to be taken into captivity to Assyria in 722 B.C. And so there's a, there's a, there's a lesson there, I think. But let's go on to chapter 27, and then it gets into the military divisions. And it says, And the children of Israel, according to their number, the heads of fathers' houses, the captains of thousands and hundreds, and their officers, served the king in every matter of the military divisions. These divisions came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division having 24,000. So 24,000 times 12 is 288,000 men. And so uh, that's a lot of men. And they, again, would do it in courses. They would do it in, in order. So not everybody's serving at the same time, but everybody's taking a part. One month, there'd be 12,000 serving. The next month, another 12,000 or, or 24,000. And, and, and that's the way they would do things. And, and, and we do that here, even in the ministry here. You know, there's different people doing different things. And, and that uh, does a lot of things. It gives people a rest. And... Um, it gets everybody involved who want to be involved. And there's certainly a lot of things to do. Twelve in the scripture speaks of complete or perfect government. And obviously there's no perfect government on the earth right now. Even in our um, republic that we have, democratic republic, whatever you want to call it, it's not a perfect thing. But soon there's coming a government where we will be with the Lord are you looking forward to that day? I'm really looking forward to that day. And there's going to be nobody who's going to be able to, you know, claim that uh, Jesus has done something wrong, that he hasn't paid his taxes or, or, or whatever. And they're not going to come after him because he's perfect. When Christ comes on the earth, there will be a perfect government. The people won't be perfect. There'll still be um, rebellion, even in the millennial kingdom. But those of us who are in the church who have new bodies, we will inherit that wonderful new kingdom and we will be uh, in agreement with Jesus and he will have all of us. 
But in verse 2, it says, Over the first division uh, for the first month was Jashubim, the son of Zabdiel, and in his division were 24,000. Again, these are military divisions. He was, the children, he was of the children of Perez and the children of all the captains of the army for the first month. Over the division of the second month was Dodei and Ahohite, and of his division, Mikloth was the leader. In his division were 24,000. And the third captain of the army for the third month was Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who was chief. In his division were 24,000. And this was the Benaniah who was mighty among the 30, meaning David's mighty men. This is one of David's mighty men, and he was one of those who was involved in this, one of the uh, military men, obviously. He was over the 30, and in his division was Amizabad, his son. Verse 7, the fourth captain for the fourth month was Asahel, the brother of Joab, and Zebediah, his son, after him, in his division, were 24,000. Now, this um, Asahel, if you remember, being a brother of Joab, if you remember back in Second Samuel chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 19, Asahel, being a very valiant man, one of David's nephews, uh, he went after, remember, Abner, who was uh, King Saul's commander or captain of his army. And Asahel went after Abner to kill him. And Abner, being a much more um, astute soldier, a much more seasoned soldier, um, as Asahel was following him and they were going up a hill, Asahel, or um, excuse me, Abner told Asahel to stay away. He goes, if you don't stop following me, young boy, I'm going to kill you. And Asahel would have nothing above it. And he kept following him. So finally, Abner... Uh, thrust him through with a spear, and he died. But this division evidently was already in place back at that time, when, uh, during that time. And so David had already set this in order. And then verse 8, the fifth captain for the fifth month was Shemhu, the Israelite. Uh, in his division were 24,000. And the sixth captain uh, for the sixth month was Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite. In his division were 24,000. The seventh captain for the seventh month was Helez, the Pelonite, of the children of Ephraim. In his division were 24,000. The eighth captain for the eighth month was Sibakai, the Hushathite, of the Zarhites. In his division, again, were 24,000. The ninth captain for the ninth month was Abiezer, the Anathathite, of the Benjamites. In his division were 24,000. You know, I don't think I'd want to mess with these guys. You know, the, the temple and the, everything in it was very well protected from outside enemies. You know, for any smaller enemy anyway. <laughs> you know, when the Romans come at you or, the, or, or Babylon, the Babylonians, you know, you're going to have a problem. But, but it was very well fortified and it was very thought out very well. And I like that. You know, they didn't take anything for granted. Verse 13, the tenth captain of the tenth month was Meharai, the Netophathite of the Zarhites. In his division were 24,000. And the eleventh captain of the eleventh month was Benaiah, the Pyrethonite of the children of Ephraim. In his division were 24,000. And the twelfth captain for the twelfth month was Heldei, the Netophathite of Othniel. In his division were 24,000. And then it lists from verse 16, 
onward the leaders of the tribes. And it goes on, it says, Furthermore, over the tribes of Israel, the officer over the Rumanites was Eleazar, the son of Zichri, over the Simeonites, Shephathiah, the son of Maacah, over the Levites, Hashabiah, the son of Kemuel, over the Aaronites, Zadok, over Judah, Elihu, one of David's brothers, over Issachar, Omri, the son of Michael, over Zebulun, Ishmael, the son of Obadiah, over Naphtali, Jeremoth, the son of Azrael, over the children of Ephraim, uh, Hoshea, the son of Azaziah, over the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joel, the son of Pedaiah, over the half-tribe of Manasseh in Gilead. So now we're talking about those on the eastern side of the uh, Jordan River. Iddo, the son of Zechariah, over Benjamin, Jesiel, uh, the son of Abner, over Dan, Azarel, the son of Jeroam, These were the leaders of the tribes of Israel. Notice verse 23. But David did not take the number of those 20 years old and under because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel like the stars of the heavens. And that was a promise that God had made to David, remember, in the Davidic covenant. And uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I've been referring to that a lot. And if it's one one of those chapters and and scripture references, you might want to just commit to memory. Because in the Davidic covenant is loaded a lot of promises. You know, God's promise that the the Jews would be as innumerable as the stars and that David's line would continue and that it would be an everlasting kingdom. And just amazing promises that God made to David, and not only of his own immediate son, but looking far-reaching, far uh, into the future from David at that time, over a thousand years actually, speaking of Jesus Christ, who would come through the line of Judah, the son of David, yet the David's son, right? David's Lord, but David's son. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, remember Zeruiah was David's sister, that was her name. And uh, Joab and Asahel and his brother, they were nephews of, of David. But Joab, the son of Zeruiah, he began a census and, um, and he did not finish for wrath came upon Israel because of this census, nor was the number recorded in the account of the chronicles of King David. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at this chapter in chapter 21 of First Chronicles and when David had numbered the people of Israel, not because he... Um, he was, just, he was in a moment in his life, toward the end of his life, feeling very proud of how you know, there was peace. And now he had this huge, formidable uh, army, and he wanted to know the numbers, you know, sitting back. And, and, and it's tempting for every man, isn't it? Uh, and every woman, you know, you get to a certain age, and you've worked really hard all your life, and now you have this time where you're just kind of coasting, and there's this, there's this thing within you that wants to know the numbers, I want to see this spreadsheet. How well did I do? And what it's doing is it's validating who you really are. And let me ask you, I I don't know where this is going. This is interesting because I'm just going along with it. But who are you? (laughs) I mean, is your life the spreadsheet? I know people who do that. 
They wake up every morning and they look at the spreadsheet. They want to find out the numbers. They want to see where they stack up in the grand scheme of things. And, and your life is much more than a spreadsheet. It's much more than uh, trophies on a mantle. It's much more than uh, the accolades or the ribbons or the certificates on the wall. Whatever it is, you know, the bragging rights. Your life is so much more to God than those things. And yet we validate ourselves, our ministries, our lives based on those kind of things. And David is really in that place. And we looked at that, and God judged him for it. He gave him three options. David, which one do you want? <laughs> You're going to get hammered, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to pick your punishment. And David said, you know what? I don't want to fall into the hands of man. Lord, I'd rather fall into your hands because I know you're gracious and merciful. Man, not so much. And God, remember, began to destroy the children of Israel. And several thousand of them died. And then the angel uh, of God was standing over Jerusalem and began to destroy the men and women of Jerusalem. And, um, and, then, he, and then David, remember... Uh, God told him to build an altar right there on Mount Moriah. And Aruna, the Jebusite, he gave to David, wanted to give him the land and the, everything that was needed for the sacrifice and everything. And David says, I can't, if it, if it costs me nothing, I can't worship God with something that costs me nothing. I'll give you the fair price for the land, for the, for the cattle, for the, for the carriage that they, they're carrying, all of that. And he did, and he paid for it. And he began to sacrifice on that place, on the Temple Mount, where you and I would see the Dome of the Rock today. In that area, probably a little bit to the north, actually, was where possibly that, that, um, that threshing floor was right up there in that area. And once they began to sacrifice, the angel of God stopped destroying and the people were spared. And the people, their attitude wasn't any better than David's, I'm sure. By that time, they were all proud, resting on their leaves as well. And God wasn't going to have it. But verse 25, it goes on and speaks of other state officials. And it says, And Asmaveth, the son of Adiel, was over the king's treasuries. And Jehonathan, the son of Uzziah, was over the storehouses in the field, in the cities, in the villages, and in the fortresses. Ezri, the son of Chelub, was over those who did the work of the field for tilling the ground. And Shimei, the Ramathite was over the vineyards, and Zabdi, the Shifmite, was over the produce of the vineyards for the supply of wine. Baal Hanan, the Gedarite, was over the olive trees and the sycamore trees that were in the lowlands, and Joash was over the store of oil. And Shetrei, the Sharonite, was over the herds that fed in Sharon. And Shaphat, the son of Adlai, was over the herds that were in the valleys. Obile, the Ishmaelite, was over the camels. Jediah, the uh, Moronathite, was over the donkeys. And Jaziz, the Hagrite, was over the flocks. And these were the officials over King, King David's property. Think of all of that, all of that care that needed to be done in the kingdom. <laughs> what an amazing thing. And, you know, and just to think about what it's going to be like for us, you know, Jesus has promised, the, promised us that we're going to rule and reign with him in the new Jerusalem and in the, in the kingdom to come. 
when he comes back in his second coming to the earth, we are going to rule and reign. The church with the, with the redeemed, all of redeemed Israel will rule and reign with him during that time. And think of the, the things that are going to happen. Zechariah tells us at the end of Zechariah that there's going to be sacrifices. And you may gasp when you hear that. You mean sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the millennium reign? Yeah, there's going to be animal sacrifices. Not because it needs to happen, but they will do them in memorial of what uh, Israel had done all this time. But it's not in the sense of atonement, because that's already been taken care of in the face of Christ. Follow me? But it does speak of that happening in the millennial reign. And there'll be plenty to do. There'll be plenty things for us to do. Not only in that area, but outside in the world. It's going to be a very interesting time. And you'll be in a new body. Isn't that exciting? There won't be any more masks, mandates. There won't be any hips that go out. There won't be any more heart transplants. For those of us who have our new bodies, you guys are going to look fabulous. All of you, fabulous. You know, fabulous. Even Richard, he's going to look even more fabulous. And... uh He's going to have golden blonde hair and it's all going to look nice and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a lot to do in, in, in the millennium. But David here is uh, also, there's so much to do and so many people to minister. And going on here in verse 32 and it says, And Jehonathan, David's uncle, and this is the first time in the scripture that we find out that David had an uncle. We know that his father was Jesse, right? But who was Jesse's brother? Well, Jehonathan. That was David's uncle. So this is the first time in the scripture we hear about Jehonathan, David's uncle. He was a counselor, a wise man at this time, and a scribe. And Jehiel, the son of Hakmoni, was with the king's sons. So David had a group of people caring for his sons because he had many sons. And David was very busy and so he had people helping him with his family. And Ahithophel, verse 33, was the king's counselor and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. If you remember back in uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel, you remember that Ahithophel was one of these um, who um, we believe he was the grandfather of Bathsheba, the very woman that David had committed that intercourse with and uh, got her pregnant and ultimately had her husband, remember Uriah, put to death. Ahithophel, we believe, was Bathsheba's grandfather, and he also was one of David's counselors uh, at the time. And, uh, and then after the situation with Bathsheba and uh, your, you know, David killing Uriah, obviously their relationship evidently went south. And remember Absalom, when he came against David and tried to overthrow his kingdom, Ahithophel was one of those who defected to Absalom trying to overthrow David. And uh, with good reason, he had plenty of motive in his heart uh, to do that. And um, remember, he was the, also the one when, um, when Absalom didn't follow his advice, he, uh, and instead taking the advice of Hushai, the archite, um, being as proud as he was, he went to his home and hung himself because his, 
he was a, a notable counselor, and now that his advice wasn't going to be kept, his life was over in his estimation. So he went home and got his affairs in order, the Bible says, and then he hung himself. And um, that's pretty an awful thing, isn't it? You know, the thing that he did was more to him than his life. And I wonder if somebody could have told him, hey, Ahithophel, I know you're angry with David, but your life means more to you. Your life means more to God than what you've ever done for David or anybody else. All of your wisdom, all of your great counsel, even if all of that went away, you're still important to God. And I would encourage you that tonight. You know, we kind of touched on it as we went along here, but your life means more to God than anything you could ever do for him. And anything you could ever prove to do for him. You know, because we often do that. We think that we want to somehow prove ourselves in this world. Everybody does it. You know, you want to validate yourself. You want to work hard. You want to climb the ladder and then get to the top, you know, and validate yourself. But your life, even if you are an absolute nobody who did nothing, your life means more to God than any of that. And see, we don't believe that. But... That is the truth. And that's why there's so many people today just losing hope and committing suicide because they feel like they have no value. They have no place in society. They feel nothing. And everybody makes them feel that way too. And sometimes people just need to go, you need to walk up to somebody who's kind of disheveled and really feeling down and just say, you know what? Your life means more to God than, than you can imagine. He's got a plan for your life yet. Do you want to know it? Do you want to serve him? And honestly, my life took off the moment I wanted to serve Christ. I was doing my own thing, going my own way, and I really wasn't happy, honestly. But now I'm excited. Now I'm really excited. Because I never planned any of this for my life, and you didn't either. You didn't plan to be a Christian. You didn't plan to be a, a ministry worker. You didn't plan any of that, I'm sure. And think of your life now, how blessed it is. It's very encouraging, isn't it? Your life means something, a great deal to God. Don't ever forget that. Especially when you're feeling low and, you know, those days when you wake up and your dog bit you and then your car won't start and your wife leaves you, she puts all your clothes out the front, you know, out by the, out by the trash heap and, you know, she puts your dartboard out there and, you know, scratches up your car and everything. And then your boss fires you. Just a horrible day. All your stocks bomb. You know, you forget your lunch to go to work. On the way home, you get hit by a car and you're maimed for life. And then there's a hurricane. And then it wipes you down and down a stream and then you, you break your neck and then you're in traction in the hospital. And then somebody's standing on your oxygen tube. Very bad day. And then you get to heaven, and then, you know, you're up there, and then all of a sudden, somebody's trying to resuscitate you, and then you come back to earth, and then, you know, you fall out of your bed, and you break your other leg. Really bad day. Have no idea where that came from, but... You know what, I think you guys needed this because the, these two chapters are tough. I know this because I've had to go through it. So now the fun begins. Let's look at chapter 28 and then we'll, uh, 
We'll take communion here shortly. So notice, now David assembled at Jerusalem all the leaders of Israel, the officers of the tribes and the captains and the divisions who served with the king, the captains over thousands, captains over hundreds, and the stewards over all substance and possessions of the king. And of his sons with the officials... You know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on this. I'm looking at the clock. And um, next week we'll finish uh, chapters uh, 28 and 29. And it'll, it'll actually make more sense, actually, these last two chapters together. And so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into this yet. Um, but we're going to take communion tonight. But I, I wanted to, again, just encourage you. You know, to get involved. You know, as we look at all of these workers and the things that they did, you know, and some of you have stepped up and we don't necessarily invite people. We don't ask you, you know, if you're out in the fellowship hall, we're not going to say, hey, would you be willing to grab a broom and, and, and clean up aisle three? You know, I mean, we're not going to do that to you. But I want to encourage you to, to get involved in something in the, in the church. Or it could be uh, somewhere outside of the church. Maybe you do something here. And it could be something really small and insignificant. But let me tell you, just like in, as David is preparing all the workers and all the stuff for Solomon, I, I, there's so much to be done. There's so much that can be done. And maybe the thing you do is just something really simple and easy. It takes you 20 minutes or a half hour. And you can serve the Lord that way. And it may not be something that is paraded and everybody knows it. And that's okay. Because I think oftentimes the people in heaven that are going to remember the Bema Seat judgment that we were talking about, the, the, the judgment for believers, not a judgment of salvation, but rather a, a receiving of rewards in heaven for believers. That Bema Seat judgment, they call it. After the rapture, we believe that that's going to happen based on the scriptures. And we'll receive rewards based on what we've done since we be, we've been Christians. And it's a big deal. You know, uh, and doing anything for the Lord is a good thing. And, and you may not be noticed here on this earth for that small thing that you do. You know, there's, there's people throughout the week that come in and, you know, there's one gentleman who's faithful every Tuesday. He comes in and he vacuums uh, the foyer and the, 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 the carpet out there. And then he uh, vacuums the, all the carpet. And then he comes in here and he vacuums. There's other people who, you know, clean the toilets every week. They come and they do all of them. And there's plenty of things. There's glass, you know, to, to clean. There's all kinds of things. And, and so just pray about that, you know, because we're, we're one body but many members. And like the, the old adage says, many hands make light work. And I can't do all of it. And there's brothers on staff and they can't do it all either. And so just think about that. But I want to um, also encourage you again, just that your, your life, what is your life? 
You know, I think of Ahithophel and just, can you imagine? You're no longer wanted for what you do. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like people at Xerox or Kodak back in the old days, you know, these guys worked a long time and then they get laid off and now they don't know what to do with themselves. They've been working there for 20-some years and now they're laid off and their life is over, they think. And they're not really marketable anywhere else now because they've been doing the same job for 20 years. So they get discouraged. They start drinking. They start laying around, doing nothing, and their life, their, <laughs> you know, their health goes down the, down the tubes. But their lives, are mean, they mean something to God, and your life does too. If I could have Sarah come up, and um, let's take communion together. In fact, you mean so much to God that he bore the punishment for you and I. And that's what we need to think of when we come to the table. In fact, the Bible says that as often as we do this, we, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. That's what it says in Corinthians 11. We remember the Lord's death, what he did for us, until he comes for us. And we're remembering that tonight because we think about all that he has done for us, that he has paid the price for me and for you. And what a great thing. He'll, he'll never look upon your life as a believer and, 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 and say, well, there's this thing that you did in the past. It's, it's under the blood. I would encourage you to confess everything that you know of and even the things that you forgot that you did that God knows what they are and he'll forgive you. And you come to him. Come to him. Your life means a great deal to him. In fact, what is Worship. Worship is when you give something for someone else. And because of its worth, what you give shows how much you really love that thing. Right? And he gave himself. The very, the darling, we're going to sing that, the darling of heaven. He gave his life for you and me. And that was the greatest act of worship that ever occurred in history, in the universe the Lamb of God, the blood of God being broken for you and I, that we would not see death or hell. We would not see eternal death. We would not see hell, but rather we would see life and eternal life with him. Isn't that the greatest thing going? So as we worship, come on up and take the elements, bring them back to your, uh, your chair, and then we'll take them together, okay? I love that phrase in this song, and I, I've always, it's always struck me, the darling of heaven. You know, we just don't talk like that anymore. You know, when's the last time you heard the word darling? And yet he is the darling of heaven. The only one. The only one who's really worthy. The only one worthy to unleash and an un to release those scrolls as we see in Revelation that is yet future. He's the only one who's worthy to bring that judgment because he is the one who paid the price for our ransom. 
And as we take these elements tonight, you know, in the Middle East, taking a meal, having a meal with someone, and this is the, the, the setting, really, of this communion. The very first time it was done, you remember, they were taking, they were enjoying the Passover meal on the night before Jesus would be arrested and wrongly accused and crucified. But they were there in that upper room, and they had that meal, that Passover meal. And remember, at the end of that meal, Jesus did something that no one else has ever done before. You know, after they considered the lamb and the, you know, the, the bitter herbs, and as they remembered long ago what the Passover meant to them. You know, the, the angel of death coming over Egypt and slaying all the firstborn whose blood was not on the lentil of the house that they were in. And that was, the, that was the idea of the Passover. If the blood was applied to the lentil of the doorpost, the top and the sides, forming a cross of blood that they would use with the hyssop, the weedy vegetation that they would dip in the blood and hit over the top and then the, over the side post, forming a cross. And little did they know, probably, that that is exactly what would happen Several thousands of years in the future, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, on Passover, a high day, when the Sabbath and the Passover aligned exactly, it was a high day that time. And Jesus, as the lambs were being slaughtered, he was on the cross and he paid the price. But the night before, he took these elements and he had the bread and the the chalice of wine, and they passed it around. And you remember, he says, take this bread is my body that's broken for you. Eat all of it and do it as often as you can in remembrance of me. And so that's why we take communion three times a month here. Once on Sunday morning, once on Sunday evening, once on Thursday evening. We remember what Jesus has done. And how could we really ever forget? But in, in a life as busy as ours, it's good for us to remind ourselves of these things. And we'll never forget. And so let's take the bread that was broken, his body that was broken for us. Let's partake of that. And afterwards, he took the cup and he passed it around. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. His blood that hadn't even been shed yet. But he knew just hours from then he would, his blood would be shed. His body would be broken. His soul would be made an atonement for sin. He would literally become sin for us on that cross and pay the price. And in anticipation of that, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he passed it around and they each drank from that cup. And as we take these elements and we take them deep into us, there's no deeper place in your body, do you understand, is when you have something in your stomach. It's at the very center of your being. And basically what you're attesting to is, Lord, I believe everything that you said, everything that you did on that cross, I believe now and I take this in remembrance of you and I take it knowing that you have paid the price. And again, what great fellowship. That's why it's called communion because it was one of the most intimate things you could do with somebody other than a husband and wife you would take you would eat together and so we do this in remembrance of him in Jesus name let's partake
Lord Jesus, we thank you for rising from the grave, Lord, defeating death and hell. And God, thank you that for those of us who believe in you, Lord, we will never see it. And Lord, glory be to you, Lord. Praise be to your name, Lord, of all the things that you've done and all the things that you have yet to do, Lord. It is truly an interesting time for us to be alive at this time. Lord, we give ourselves to you. And whatever remainder of time we have here yet, Lord, until that trumpet sounds, Lord, may we be faithful. May you challenge us, Lord, and may we turn from those things, from everything, Lord, that is just grieving you in any way, Lord. We give those things to you tonight, and Lord, wash us, continually wash us in the blood of Jesus, and thank you for the provision of that, Lord. We are clean indeed by the blood of Christ tonight. And thank you for this time together, Lord. You are so awesome, and we love you so much, Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.